Revealing truth by exposing lies. What does that mean? That means that on this podcast, we're going to talk about a variety of subjects, but we have an intention in mind, and that is to move beyond political ideology, religious dogmatism, tribalism, and nationalism, even beyond personal opinion, beyond false authorities that so many people don't even question, and taking you, the audience, someplace that you may not be quite ready to go, to that place beyond us and them. This is Two Dimwits. We are two political idiots who want to discuss politics and religion. Dwight Hignite on the left, Mark Matthews on the right. Thank you for joining us as we find common ground between the far left and the far right. What makes us human? 100,000 years ago, at least six different species of humans inhabited Earth, yet today there are only one, Homo sapiens. There must have been some change in how these very early humans were living that altered their and our course and set us on a path to separate ourselves from the other humanoids. And that difference is storytelling. To quote Jonathan Gosell, Tens of thousands of years ago, when the human mind was young and our numbers were few, we were telling one another stories. And now, tens of thousands of years later, when our species teems across the globe, most of us still hew strongly to myths about the origin of things, and we still thrill to the astonishing multitude of fictions on pages, on stages, on screens, murder stories, sex stories, war stories, conspiracy stories, true stories, and false. We are, as a species, addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. What makes us human is our unwavering desire to give meaning to the meaningless. And to do this, we must use collective fiction. Collective fiction can be defined as something that is not real, but is believed by so much of society that it becomes effectively real. A collective fiction is something that is not physically or objectively real. You can't touch it or see it or taste it. But to many people, it exists nevertheless. Two prime examples of this are traditional religion and forms of government. This explains why humans manage to build astonishingly, astonishingly large populations when other primate groups topped out at 150 individuals. These primates lacked our talent for storytelling, which allows us to build community and to propagate our ideas over time. Consequently, humans have formed cohesive societies too large for personal relationships between everyone. Our storytelling faculty is what has produced universally accepted imagined realities, such as money and the Limited Liability Corporation. Collective fictions are effectively real, that is, they have the same effects on a person as something which is not real. For example, hunger is actually real 
and democracy is effectively real. Yet both can lead us to the same action. I can kill someone for their food, or I can kill someone for their beliefs against democracy. Collective fiction, once believed or accepted without question by the vast majority, becomes a consensus reality. In other words, our consensus reality is made up of a mixture of objective facts and collective fiction. Which are which? Most people will never know which is which because most people never bother to put them to the test. Such collective fictions produce a consensus reality. Religious axioms and political presuppositions. These unquestioned assumptions within a group are then used to keep the majority in line because those individuals who step outside the group think risk losing their primary mechanism for obtaining meaning and emotional validation. We might say that human beings are very good at deceiving themselves into groupthink because believing collective fictions are rewarded. There is an immediate emotional payoff. We don't naturally value objective facts over our need for validation. Simply stated, truth takes a back seat to expediency, group identity, and social acceptance. The prophets, the rebels, and not a few queer nonconformists who adamantly refuse to kowtow to a specific collective fiction will undoubtedly become disenfranchised from the rewards and the benefits of belief in that particular social construct. In some cases, they are persecuted, punished, penalized, and even put to death. At the very least, they are constrained by censorship and treated with contempt as dimwits who hold dangerous ideas. Such a person might be disfellowshipped from his church, temple, or synagogue. They might be expelled from the university or lose their status in the organization. The threat of such an event can drive fear into the heart of the social animal. The prospect that they might be treated as a pariah for not accepting the consensus reality keeps them in line with the politically correct view. Few have the moral courage to stand alone in the face of this tremendously overwhelming psychological pressure. When a group of peers holds a view you do not agree with, it can be easy to go along to get along. And this is all the more true if one's identity is part and parcel of that said group. The cost of rejection from a group is a price too heavy to bear for those who are deeply invested in their group. The toxic emotion of shame is something most would do anything to avoid. And few indeed are they who stand up under that punitive withdrawal of social validation. The need for validation is one of the strongest motives driving the human psyche. We need validation from others in order to maintain our self-esteem in the same way that the body needs shelter from the elements of nature. But when our ideas or behavior are in conflict with what is socially acceptable, we suffer emotionally for lack of validation. Indeed, just the thought of how such an unpleasant drama might unfold should we pursue an unpopular train of thought is often enough to force most people back into their safe harbor of submission. Storytelling is both what conveys meaning as well as what gives us meaning. We gain meaning and find purpose from our stories, the stories we hear that help us find our place in society. We also tell ourselves stories, and from our own story, we find our identity within a group by sharing and accepting that group's collective fiction as our own. Our need for validation and community is hardwired into our biology. That means we need mess in order to find meaning. And we need to not question the accepted mess of our culture, 
or we risk being cut off from those social structures where meaning finds its expression. The consequence of which has a direct impact on a person's ability to attract a mate and therefore their ability to propagate their genes into the future. This is expressly why early humans started believing in collective fictions. Beliefs were passed down from generation to generation as a kind of social software or cultural software. If the individual who holds a certain belief are more successful at having and raising children than individuals who do not hold that belief, then over time that belief itself will be held by a larger and larger portion of the population. Because of this, one could argue that natural selection acts to help propagate those beliefs. This is why Dawkins coined the term meme to represent an idea that is repeated and quickly spreads through society. A meme behaves like a selfish gene that is seeking to reproduce itself. Religious or political ideologies can then be thought of as a meme matrix or a collection of memes that support and reinforce one another. We might call man a meme machine and man's idea of a god the supreme meme. Collective fictions give group members common ground with each other. Researcher and author Jonathan Gachelle argues that story, sacred and profane, is perhaps the main coherent force in human life. A society is composed of factionist people and different personalities, goals and agendas. What connects us beyond our kinship ties? Story. Story is the counterforce to social disorder, the tendency of all things to fall apart. Story is the center without which the rest cannot be held together. The unity fostered by collective fictions can be life-saving. If you were an early human stranger and you approached me at night and asked me to trade my arrows for your berries, there is a decent chance that I would stab you and take your berries. But if you approached me and tell me that you believe in the same God as I do, then I may be more willing to trust you and therefore trade with you instead of kill you. Similarly, Today, if you ask me to go with you and to kill the leader of a country, I would not go. But if you tell me that you are fighting for human rights and the leader has committed mass atrocities against innocent people, then I might work with you because I share the same views about human rights. Collective fictions give us a common life experience and can help us strengthen our relationships and pursue common goals. Collective fictions also introduce the idea of should. They give early humans a reason to do the right thing, even if you would rather not. This actually has two effects on society. One is that it can entice people to behave better. For example, maybe I won't kill my neighbor if I know that it would offend my God. The other effect is that it leads to the development of rule-breaking and punishment. Maybe I won't kill my neighbor because I know that I'll be killed for that criminal act. Either way, the effect is the same. I chose not to kill my neighbor, even though I have the full ability to do so, and perhaps even the desire. Even when I have a motivation to kill, there are collective fictions that prevent me from doing so. Collective fictions allow us to cooperate at a higher level and with more individuals. 
Take money, for example. A dollar bill itself does not help me at all. It is a dyed piece of fabric. It has no worth. I can't eat it, protect myself with it, or mate with it. But my society has the collective fiction of monetary value, and all members of my society believe that a dollar bill is worth a banana. Now, a Federal Reserve note is useful because I can give you a collateralized debt obligation and you will give me a real banana that I can eat. With the collective fiction of monetary value, a dollar bill really does equal a banana. Again, to quote Jonathan Gushell, Stories, in other words, continues to fulfill its ancient function of binding society by reinforcing a set of common values and strengthening the ties of common culture. Story encourages the youth. It defines the people. It tells us what is laudable and what is contemptible. It subtly and consistently encourages us to be decent instead of indecent or decadent, empathetic rather than eccentric. Story is the grease and the glue of society. By encouraging us to behave well, story reduces social friction while uniting people around common values. Story homogenizes us. It makes us one. Collective fictions only become elevated to the level of consensus reality when they have good memes. If an individual has an idea, a story to tell, and is able to tell it to others in such a way that it gets repeated by them and others, then we can say that that idea has good memes. Depending on what the meme is, it may be shared using language or art. Most ideas can be shared with language. Stories and religions were shared orally for thousands of years before they could be written down. But for some things, emotions of extreme happiness, sadness, and anger, there are no words to describe. For these, we can use art. Good memes are not limited by language. Nevertheless, it was storytelling that drove human evolution. Before collective fictions, human population sizes were restricted to the difficulty of organizing and cooperating in large groups. But collective fictions connected humans on key parts of life, such as religion and government. Then, as language developed more and more, the fictions could become more complex, concrete, and shared with other members of the society. Groups of humans who shared the same beliefs, the same stories, the same collective fictions, found common ground to organize and to cooperate in large populations. The nature of reality used to be philosophical, metaphysical contemplation, but now it has become more and more political. There's a struggle going on to take ownership of what defines it, and our most instinctive ideas about what it is needs to be reevaluated. Reality beyond our immediate awareness is constructed from information received via personal anecdote to some extent, and beyond that, by information streaming services such as news outlets, blogs, and independent journalists. A process of reality modification is ongoing, continually being updated on a personal and a collective level. On the collective level, reality is constructed through assimilation. Daily announcements are made, usually via mainstream or social media, that contain certain events that supposedly occurred or perhaps a trend that's being observed somewhere. These events and trends will be analyzed, debated, compared to other similar contrasting 
events and trends and gradually synthesized into the ever-evolving thing that we call real world. A strange truth about humanity is once enough people have read something or heard something and passed it on, we are hardwired by instinct to accept what enough other trusted people tell us. This psychological submission begins to reinforce that information irresistibly, even in the face of reputed evidence or evidence to the contrary. Even in the face of clear proof, it isn't, or perhaps never was, true. Countless examples can be cited. Our consensus reality is stuffed with such anomalies, relic truths that aren't true, relic events that never happened as recorded or never happened at all. Because of the collective, consensus knowledge trumps individual observation. Now this needed to be the case for eons while the human beings evolved. But now we can't seem to shut it off, even though it no longer makes sense. Even though we know we are being lied to by the news media and other false authorities within our society, we feel compelled to keep our opinions to ourselves, lest we become socially ostracized. The point is our consensus reality isn't working anymore and probably hasn't been working longer than we're comfortable contemplating. Can we even tell the moment it began to diverge from Veritas, let alone how far on this path we have gone or where the divergence took place? All we know is our histories are assemblies of anecdotes taken on trust. Few or none of us were here when the events allegedly happened. If we go back further than 90 years, none of us were even alive to hear about what happened. And what we did here was given to us through third parties or fourth hand. Everything beyond our first awareness is an assembly of communal trust, an act of faith on our human narrative. Our culture is still basically the Neolithic one of collective understanding, but lost in some cognitive trauma. Collective experience has molded us to be what we are, and we owe it everything. Without it, we would be nothing. Yet collective experience is blatantly not telling us the truth anymore. Guy Fox was likely a patsy set up by Robert Cecil. The Gulf of Tonkin incident was a lie. The 9-11 attack was a false flag. And the Federal Reserve isn't any more federal than Federal Express. We need to find the courage to evolve to the point we can finally admit this and move on to a different form of understanding in which we debate facts and not fictions and use logical deductive reasoning to form consensus rather than to repeat and parrot the memes that sound good. What we are being told by the corporate news media needs to be interrogated as a matter of course. We need to recognize the external false authorities as well as the internal false authority. We need to embrace a healthy skepticism and develop logical deductive reasoning in place of blind trust. We need to grow and face the facts of life. The real world is not necessarily the place that we have been led to believe it is. The bitter pill to swallow is coming to realize that the biggest false authority of all is our own perception. In order to move forward toward truth, we must consider that everything we believe is wrong. Only when we relinquish our preconceived ideas and prejudices can we be free to see things clearly, to free our minds from bias. When we do empty ourselves in this way, the judgmental false authorities within are put to death, and we are able to see beyond the consensus reality, the religious dogmatism, 
and political ideology. And the collective fiction no longer has the power to control or manipulate us. Then we can stop being a puppet on a string who only parrots memes that we think sound good. Only then can we return to being truly human. When we can stop being used as a tool for some false authority and start being truly autonomous, only then can we experience liberty and share that liberty with our fellow humans by our example. In order to fully embody our human beingness, we must understand everything as a metaphor, but not every metaphor has our name on it. The old ideas of us versus them need to be let go of. We need to overcome our tribalism and nationalism and learn to love one another as we love ourselves. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.